Chapter 27, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 27, Part 2 The Silver Wedding. Meanwhile, the books went on. In 1926 appeared The Outline of Sanity, The Catholic Church, and Conversion, chiefly concerned with his own mental history, The Incredulity of Father Brown, and The Queen of Seven Swords. In 1927, for the first time, his scattered poems were brought into the volume of Collected Poems. St. Augustine asks whether we can praise God before we know him. Gilbert answered that question when, by praise and thanksgiving, he came as a boy to the discovery of God, beginning by a passionate desire to thank someone for the universe. There is much praise in the collected poems. There is the note of hope in an almost hopeless fight in the Ballad of the White Horse. There are lovely poems to his wife. Since Browning, none has understood the sacrament of marriage as well as Gilbert Chesterton. In 1927, there also appeared beside a couple of pamphlets, The Return of Don Quixote, Robert Louis Stevenson, The Secret of Father Brown, and The Judgment of Dr. Johnson. Robert Louis Stevenson took Gilbert back to his boyhood and is by general agreement among the best of his literary studies. But the best thing he ever said, apropos of Stevenson, came not in this book, but in his attack on the science of eugenics. Keats died young, but he had more pleasure in a minute than a eugenist gets in a month. Stevenson had lung trouble, and it may, for all I know, have been perceptible to the eugenic eye even a generation before. But who would perform that illegal operation? The stopping of Stevenson. Intercepting a letter bursting with good news, confiscating a hamper full of presents and prizes, pouring torrents of intoxicating wine into the sea. All this is a faint approximation for the eugenic inaction of the ancestors of Stevenson. This, however, is not the essential point. With Stevenson, it is not merely a case of the pleasure we get, but the pleasure he got. If he had died without writing a line, he would have had more red-hot joy than is given to most men. Shall I say of him, to whom I owe so much, let the day perish wherein he was born, Shall I pray that the stars of the twilight thereof be dark, and be not numbered among the days of the year, because it shut not up the days of his mother's womb? I respectively decline. Like Job, I will put my hand upon my mouth. Eugenics and Other Evils, page 57. When the Stevenson itself appeared, Sir Edmund Goss wrote, I have just finished reading the book in which you smite the detractors of R.L.S., hip and thigh. I cannot express without a sort of hyperbole the sentiments which you have awakened, of joy, of satisfaction, of relief, of malicious and vindictive pleasure. We are avenged at last. It is, and always since his death, has been impossible for me to write anything which went below the surface of R.L.S. I loved him, and still love him, too tenderly to analyze him. But you, who have the privilege of not being dazzled by having known him, have taken the task into your strong, competent hands. You could not have done it better. The latest survivor, the only survivor of his little early circle of intimate friends, 
thanks you from the bottom of his heart. Don Quixote is a fantasia about the future, in which the study of heraldry leads to the discovery of England and the centuries of her happiness and of her faith. Increasingly, Gilbert saw the only future for his country in a remarriage between those divorced 300 years ago, England and the Catholic Church. Don Quixote is among the less good of his books, but like all the works of these years, it is saturated with Catholicism. I wondered whether I felt more admiration or amazement when a man once asked us to publish a book on Chesterton, saying, I am an atheist myself, but that doesn't matter, as I don't deal with his religion. As a young man, Gilbert had wanted to marry the religion of Dr. Johnson to the republicanism of Wilkes, and in his Catholic faith of today, he saw simply the rounding out and the completing of the religion of Dr. Johnson. The Judgment of Dr. Johnson, his play about the great man, was, like magic, an immense success d'estime, but not a stage success. It was brilliantly acted and appreciatively criticized, but could not win a public. Bernard Shaw was still constantly urging Gilbert toward the drama. Belloc, too, believed he could write a successful play, and he and Anstey, author of Vice Versa, suggested the dramatizing of a Belloc story. But neither the scenario they jointly sketched for Belloc's Emerald, nor another made by Gilbert alone for his own flying in, ever reached the stage. I remember going with the Chestertons to a preview of a Father Brown picture. Two of the stories had been cleverly combined. The cast was first-rate, including Una O'Connor and Walter Conley and I came out feeling convinced that Father Brown would become another Charlie Chan. The stories would adapt so well, abounding as they do in scenes impossible for the stage, but perfectly easy for the screen. High walls, windows, ladders, flying harlequins. But the first picture failed, possibly because it was too short, and no more were made. The drama remained the one field in which he had no success. Shaw's name for Gilbert Belloc was the Chester Belloc, had come by the public to be used for the novels in which they collaborated. Belloc wrote the story, Chesterton drew the pictures, and the resulting product was known as the Chester Belloc. A number of the letters from Mr. Belloc begged Gilbert to do the drawings early in order to help the story. I have already written a number of situations which you might care to sketch. I append a list. Your drawing makes all the difference to my thinking. I see the people in action more clearly. And again, I can't write till I have the inspiration of your pencil, for the comedy in me is ailing. Belloc would come over to Beaconsfield for a day or a night, and the two men retired to Gilbert's minute study, whence hoots of laughter would be heard. At the end of a couple of hours, they would emerge with the drawings for a book complete. Indeed, several more than were needed. Father Rice asked Gilbert once, what he was writing, and he replied, My publishers have demanded a fresh batch of corpses. The little detective priest, I am very fond, said one reader in Chesterton, of that officious little loafer, became a feature in crime anthologies, and when Anthony Berkeley in 1929 wanted to found the detective club, he wrote that it would be quite incomplete without the creator of Father Brown. Gilbert soon became president, Needless to say, writes Dorothy Sayers, he read his part of the initiation ceremony with tremendous effect and enormous gusto. In an article Gilbert wrote about the club, he called it a very small and quiet conspiracy to which I am proud to belong. 
Meeting in various restaurants, its members would discuss various plots and schemes of crime. Some results of these discussions may be seen in the initiation ceremonies, which he made public in the article, thereby setting a good example to the Mafia, the Ku Klux Klan, the Illuminati, and all the other secret societies which now conduct the greater part of public life in the age of publicity and public opinion. The ruler shall say to the candidate, M.N., is it your firm desire to become a member of the detection club? Then the candidate shall answer in a loud voice, that is my desire. Ruler, do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect the crimes presented to them using those wits which it may please you to bestow upon them and not placing reliance on nor making use of divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo-jumbo, jiggery-pokery, coincidence, or act of God? Candidate, I do. Ruler, do you solemnly swear never to conceal a vital clue from the reader? Candidate, I do. Ruler, do you promise to observe a seemly moderation in the use of gangs, conspiracies, death rays, ghosts, hypnotism, trapdoors, Chinamen, supercriminals, and lunatics, and utterly and forever to forswear mysterious poisons unknown to science? Candidate, I do. Ruler, will you honor the king's English? Candidate, I will. Then the ruler shall ask, M.N., is there anything you hold sacred? Then the candidate, having named a thing which he holds of peculiar sanctity, the ruler shall ask, M.N., do you swear by? Here the ruler shall name the thing which the candidate has declared to be his peculiar sanctity, to observe faithfully all these promises which you have made so long as you are a member of the club. But if the candidate is not able to name a thing which he holds sacred, then the ruler shall propose the oath in this manner following. Amen. Do you, as you hope to increase your sales, swear to observe faithfully all these promises which you have made so long as you are a member of the club? A book called The Floating Admiral was brought out by the club. Chesterton wrote the introduction, and each member produced one chapter. Reading it without inside knowledge, I conceived that the idea was for each to clear up the problems created by his predecessor and create fresh ones for his successor. Gilbert tells of the subtler joke underlying the story. Perhaps the most characteristic thing that the detection club ever did was to publish a detective story, which was quite a good detective story, but the best things in which could not possibly be understood by anybody except the gang of criminals that had produced it. It was called The Floating Admiral, and was written somewhat uproariously in the manner of one of those paper games in which each writer in turn continues a story of which he knows neither head nor tail. It turned out remarkably readable, but the joke of it will never be discovered by the ordinary reader, for the truth is that almost every chapter thus contributed by an amateur detective is a satire on the personal peculiarities of the last amateur detective. This, it will be sternly said, is not the way to become a bestseller. It is a matter of taste. But to my mind, there is always a curious tingle of obscure excitement, in the works of this kind, which have remained here and there in literary history. The sort of book that it is even more enjoyable to write than to read. The Floating Admiral was a fair success financially. We hired a sort of garret, writes Monsignor Knox, with the proceeds as club rooms, 
and on the night after we all received our keys, the premises were burglariously entered. Why or by whom is still a mystery, but it was a good joke that it should happen to the detective club. Lord Peter and Father Brown and Monsieur Poirot, how were the mighty fallen? There is a custom in both English and Scottish universities of electing a Lord Rector with the accompaniment of much undergraduate ragging of the choicest kind. The candidates usually each represent a political party, but personal popularity has much to say in their success. At the Scottish universities, the contests are particularly spirited, and his keen sense of fun made Gilbert ready to accept frequent invitations to stand. At Glasgow in 1925, Austin Chamberlain got 1,242 votes, Chesterton 968, and Sidney Webb 285. What swamped you, wrote Jack Fillimore, always critical of the gentler sex, was the women whose simple snobbery cannot get past the top hat and frock coat and right honorable. Boyle was never kidnapped. Others were removed into the mountains. The last sentence might have been lifted from Sir Walter. It refers to a pleasing habit among Scots undergraduates of kidnapping the supporters of their opponents and keeping them safely concealed till after the election. Whether or not it was through their simple snobbery, as Professor Fillimore said, it was certainly the women's vote that swamped him. Of the 374 votes by which Austin Chamberlain beat Chesterton, the men only accounted for 20, the women 354. But it must have been some profounder passion that caused one of England's leading women novelists to write to the secretary of the Glasgow University Liberal Club. I fail to see why you should desire to embarrass liberalism at one of its least happy moments by associating it with that village idiot on a large scale who is responsible for the muddled economics and disagreeable fantastics of G.K.'s Weekly. This was the outlook of that official liberalism which had long made it so difficult for Gilbert to go on calling himself a liberal. The servile state was in full swing, and official liberalism asked nothing better than to be allowed to operate it. Whether Belloc and Cecil Chesterton had been right or wrong at an earlier date in seeing the political parties in collusion, it is certain that by now an utter bankruptcy in statesmanship had reduced them all to saying the same things while they did nothing. Ten years later, on the day of the last general election of his life, Gilbert wrote, The Liberal has formed the opinion that peace is decidedly preferable to its alternative of a war, and that this should be achieved through support of the League of Nations interfering with the ambitions of other nations. The ministerialist, on the other hand, holds that we should, if possible, employ a machinery called the League of Nations, with the object of securing peace, to which he is much attached. The ministerialist demands that such strong action should be taken to reduce unemployment, but the liberal does not scruple to retort that unemployment is an evil, against which strong action must be taken. The liberal thinks that we ought to revive our trade, thus thwarting and throwing himself across the path of the national Tory, who still insists that our trade should be revived. Thus the two frowning cohorts confront each other, and I hear the noise of battle even as I write. In June 1928, he was invited to stand for Edinburgh University. He replied, I do hope you will forgive me if there has been any delay in acknowledging your exceedingly flattering communication. I have been away from home, 
and moving about a good deal, and have only just returned from London. Certainly there is nothing which I should feel as so great an honor, or one so exciting, or so undeserved, as to receive even the invitation to stand for such a position in the great university that has always been so generous to me. If you really think it would be of any service to your cause, I can hardly refuse such a compliment. Of course, you understand that it is only a rather independent sense, though as I think in the right sense, that I shall always call myself a liberal. Indeed, I find it difficult to imagine any real sort of liberal who is not really an independent liberal. I am quite certain I'm not a Tory or a socialist. He was defeated at this election by Winston Churchill, who got 864 votes to 593 for G.K. and 332 for Mrs. Sidney Webb. He was again defeated at Aberdeen in 1933, coming second to Major Elliott, the other candidates being C.M. Grieve and Aldous Huxley. At one stage of the contest, the Daily Express writes, the Huxley supporters are smarting under the surprise attack made by the Chestertonians at the Huxley concert at the weekend and are preparing reprisals. The following letter is G.K.'s reply to the first proposal from the Aberdeen students, 25th of October, 1933. I can at least assure you that the delay in acknowledging properly the most flattering compliment which you have paid me was not due to any notion of neglecting it. It was due to the practical necessity at the moment of discovering and deciding on a fact which may, for all I know, save you the trouble of further consideration of the matter. And it is for this reason that I mention the practical difficulty first. I now find that I shall almost certainly be obliged to be out of England and Scotland for about three or four months, or conceivably a little more, beginning about the middle of January. I do not know what preliminary formalities would be demanded of me as a candidate, or when the demand for them would arise, but I was so strongly impressed with the honour you have paid me that I thought it my duty to find out the facts on this particular point, so that you might act on it in any way you think right. In any case, if the delay thus involved has placed you in any difficulty, I need not say that I shall fully understand your finding the project unworkable, and I shall be quite content to remember the compliment of the request. There is another consideration which would help the practical side of the cause, and for that I fear I must make the practical inquiries of you, as people understanding the circumstances. You do not mention the party you represent, and though I am, like most of us, long past attaching a horrid sanctity to the name, I hope you will forgive that much curiosity in a poor, bewildered journalist who has been exhibited in many lights and cross-lights. I was put up as a candidate at Glasgow as a Liberal, which is really quite true, but I think I managed in my election pamphlet to give my own definition of liberalism. I have also been more recently in a public platform in Glasgow, supported by my friend Mr. Compton Mackenzie, when he stood as a Scottish nationalist. Both these positions I am quite prepared to defend, but in the latter you might naturally prefer a nationalist candidate who was not only a quarter of a Scotsman. I may remark that as the quarter is called Keith and comes from Aberdeen, I am rather thrilled at the name Marischal College. There is one other point I think it only right to mention, for your sake as much as my own. You know the local conditions. Do you think it likely that we should be left with one and a half votes, looking a little ridiculous because the miserable quarter of a Scot happens to have the same religion as Bruce and Mary Stewart? 
I only ask for information which you alone could supply, but it may be that the considerations I have already mentioned have disposed of the matter. Believe me, my gratitude is none the less. Gilbert said of my father that he showed an embarrassing respect for younger men. Surely Gilbert's own tone of respect must here have embarrassed even undergraduates. The uncertainty of success or failure only troubled him as it might affect his supporters. The sporting element in the contest appealed to his undying boyishness. Perhaps this chapter may find its best conclusion in the vivid memories written down in answer to my request of one of Gilbert's younger friends, Douglas Woodruff, who came to know him in the year of that silver wedding, which meant so much that I have chosen it for the title of a chapter covering much of Chesterton's Catholic life. Chesterton devotes a long passage in the autobiography to the dinner given at the old Adelphi Terrace Hotel to Belloc on his 60th birthday in July 1930. I remember very well the high old-fashioned car the Chestertons used to hire in Beaconsfield, and I accompanied him with particular instructions to deliver him safely and on time, as was very necessary, for he was in the chair. We might have lost him, for we went first to the Times office, where I was then working, and as I had proofs to crack before disappearing for the rest of the evening, and he was seized with the idea that it would be very good fun for him to enter Printing House Square and have it announced that it was Mr. Chesterton come to write the leaders, having brought the thunder with him under his cloak. Quite early on the drive up, he began speculating about who would be the party, and when he had suggested various figures who were certainly not going to be there, he said with a mixture of regret and acceptance, there is always such a sundering quality about Bellock's quarrels. When he rose to propose the toast, he said at once that if he or anybody else in the room was remembered at all in the future, it would be because they had been associated with the guest of the evening. He meant that. The evening stood out in his memory because it was so unlike the ordinary sort of dinners he knew, where he was a principal figure himself. It delighted him that without any program or premeditation, all thirty diners in turn made speeches, in the main parody speeches. It was, in short, a party and not a performance. In the decade when I had the good fortune to know Top Meadow, he was still paying the price of literary fame which... He had sought in youth because it meant success in his calling and an income, but which became a barrier he was always meeting and breaking through. Many literary men generally enough prefer company in which they are on just the same footing as everyone else to company in which they are little kings. But Chesterton was exceptional in liking to live in the fullest equality of intercourse, not only with all sorts of men, but with the lesser practitioners of his own calling. He sought the affection and not the admiration of his fellow men, or more precisely, he sought neither. What he sought was to do things like discovering the truth in their company. No man more naturally distinguished between a man and his views or found easier the theological injunction to hate the sin but love the sinner. One of the few occasions on which I recall him as rather hurt was just after he met Stanley Baldwin at Taplow and had not been welcomed as a fellow Englishman sharing immense things like the love of the English country or English letters, but with a cold correctitude from a politician who seemed chiefly conscious he was meeting in G.K. a man who week by week sought to bring political life into hatred, ridicule, and contempt. 
He was not made by nature for the kind of journalistic tradition which Belloc and Cecil Chesterton established, and his loyal affection for them made him adopt. I recall him expounding to the lawyers of the Thomas Moore Society the absurdity of the legal definition of libel, arguing that of its nature free discussion meant arousing at any rate ridicule and contempt, if not hatred against men and measures of which you disapproved. It was ridicule that he preferred to arouse. The lawyers were quite unconvinced, as they generally are when laymen have any complaints about the law. And they soon realized that to Chesterton the whole idea of involving the law because of arguments and discussions and invective was hitting below the belt. He could be seen at his happiest in the mock trials which were held every summer for the last ten years of his life at the London School of Economics for the King Edward VII Hospital Fund. He was relied upon year after year to prosecute. One year it was leading actors and actresses, another year sculptors and architects, another year politicians, another headmasters. He entered completely into the spirit of the entertainment, which combined two of his abiding interests, public debate and private theatricals. That was a setting in which he could completely exemplify his favorite recipe for the modern world, that it should be approached in a spirit of intellectual ferocity and personal amiability. But what marked his own contributions to these affairs was the intellectual ferocity and the weight and content of his criticism. Most of the eminent men who consented to take part came to play a game for the sake of the hospitals. And because they rarely unbent like that in public, they were wholly facetious and trivial. To Chesterton, there was no difficulty or incongruity in combining the fun of acting with the fun of genuine intellectual discussion. When he prosecuted headmasters of leading public schools for destroying freedom of thought, I came down in a lift with them afterwards and found they were volubly nettled by the drastic and serious case he had made inside the stage, setting of burlesque, and seemed to think he had not been playing the game when he wrapped up so much meaning in his speech and examinations. This had never entered his head. It had come perfectly naturally to him to make wholly real and material points, even in a mock trial and with a wealth of fun. But he liked being one of the troupe on stage very much more than being a lonely, eminent figure on a platform, because to him, the great attraction of discussion was that it should be a joint quest, a mental walk with an object in view, but also with an eye for everything that might and would turn up on the way. He laughed his high laugh, like Charlemagne, his voice was unequal to his physical scale, at his own jokes because they came to him as part of the joint findings of the quest, something he had seen and collected and brought to the pot. When he made jokes about his size, as he so commonly did at the outset of a speech, it was to get rid of the elevation of the platform and to get on to equal easy terms with the audience. I am not a cat burglar, he began to the Union of Oxford, and had won them. The radio suited him so excellently precisely because it is a personal sitting down, man-to-man -man relationship that the successful broadcaster must establish. That was the relationship inside, which he naturally thought. His difficulty was that while he had not the faintest desire to be a literary man, and still less a prophet, the kind of truth he divined was, in fact, on the scale of the prophets. It seemed to me that over the last decade of his life, he found himself more and more in the dilemma that in the life of his mind, he was living with ideas. 
the fruit of a contemplative preoccupation with the Incarnation and the sacraments, which he shrank from talking about, from a natural humility and a clear and grateful understanding of the Catholic tradition of reverence and reticence. England is full of men to whom the distinction between the platform and the pulpit is very unreal. They have a moral message, and they do not much mind where they give it. But Chesterton, unlike most public men who deal in general ideas, did not come to the idea of public speaking through the Protestant tradition, but through the secular tradition, the free thinkers' debate, the political and not the religious side of High Park oratory, where men and knots shout one another down, not where some lonely long-haired prophet declaims conversion. After he became a Catholic, he sought to set himself frontiers, the apologetic territory suitable for a layman like himself. But he found himself more and more preoccupied with a territory further inland, penetrating all the time to the deeper meaning of the creed he had embraced. He could not look back and see how most of his early books had seized upon some essential part of a Catholic doctrine. He had written what he had seen at the time, but he did not stop looking because he had written, and then he always continued to see more, the great contemplative. He looked out on the universe from a very solid tower of observation, because in all but the deepest sense of the word, he always had a home, his lasting significance in his pilgrimage, but the spiritual journey was lived out in a warmly rich setting. When he wrote of the home, he was not dealing with a notion, but with a surrounding reality, one on which he had opened his eyes as a baby, and which he enjoyed without a break to the end. Francis Chesterton is among the great wives of our literary history. When he said, I can never have enough nothing to do, it was the remark of a man with a house he was generally in, a house full of things. He loved to produce cigars and wine, but tea also remained an important fixed part of the day in the Victorian tradition. When he was told by the doctor he had better drink nothing, he had many alternatives, like detective stories, read over tea and buns, which other lovers of wine would perhaps have found no consolation. Other men are secret drinkers. He would confide, I am a secret teetotaler. The first time I had tea with him, in artillery mansions in 1926, I was much struck that he brought three detective stories to the tea table. I imagine he always had time for Jack Redskin on the trail, or whatever it might be, because he had the gift, to an extent, I have never seen elsewhere of opening a book, as it were, pouring the contents down in one draft like a champion German beer drinker. He once seized from my shelves in Lincoln's Inn, Wyndham Lewis's Apes of God, saying it was a book he had not seen and wanted to see. It is a folio, and I suggested he should take it away. But he opened it and stood reading it, and here and there, not a process which could be called dipping, but a kind of sucking out of the printed contents as though he were a vacuum cleaner, and you could see the lines of type leaving the pages and being absorbed. When he put it down, it was to discuss the thesis and illustrations of the book as a man fully possessed of its whole standpoint. Once he made one of his common confusions and forgot, he was addressing the Wiseman Dining Society on the Oxford movement. In the train from Bexensfield, he said how nice it was that he had not got to speak. Francis Chesterton told him not to be silly. He knew he was speaking on the Oxford movement. He was visibly disconcerted at the start, 
for many grave seniors had assembled to hear him, but all went well in the discussion as soon as he was attacked for something he had said about Newman's views. You cannot catch me out about Newman, he said, with the joy of battle, and he produced then and there a most detailed account of just where in Newman's writings the points in question were developed. Yet he was curiously content to read what happened to come his way, and to rely upon his friends for references and facts, remembering what they might tell him, but not ordering the books which would have greatly strengthened him in the sort of newspaper arguments in which he was so often employed. He had a large collection of books at Top Meadow, but they gave the impression that they had assembled themselves. Masses of them were adventure stories. Many were presentation copies from writers. He felt that they got into the house knowing that it was a hospitable one, if not built for books, and that they would probably be allowed to stay. But he had a study which would barely home him, and the library room he did eventually build was only finished as he died. I think nothing is more superficial or belittling to him than the idea that while he might have liked the real country, he could not like Beaconsfield, as it developed into a dormitory town while he lived there. His sympathies were far too wide. He liked to tell how he had had to complain of the noise made by an adjoining cinema company. His secretary had said Mr. Chesterton finds he cannot write, and the cinema people replied, We are well aware of that. He liked to think of Mr. Garvin nearby. Not that I see him very much, he said, but I like to think that that great factory is steaming away night and day. He had great satisfaction when a friend and I, driving away in the evening, knocked down a white wooden post outside the house in starting the car. He had held that he had witnessed just how many a grand old local custom must have originated in men covering up their mistakes by saying they were fulfilling a ritual which had fallen into neglect. You must say you did it on purpose, he said. Say it was a right too long omitted, and it will soon be kept up every year and men will forget its origin and it will be known as the Bump of Beaconsfield. When a friend of his brought him a two-bladed African spear, he said, as he threw it about the lawn, that it was sad to think how many lawns there were in Beaconsfield, and how few weapons were ever thrown on any of them. Although all men enjoyed, or would enjoy, spear-throwing more, he believed, than they enjoyed clock golf. He, at any rate, was a genuinely free man, who did what it amused and pleased him to do and did not think he had to choose between the forms of activity or rest currently pursued by his neighbors. Much of the serene atmosphere of his home came from that quiet, resolute practice of the liberty of a free mind. End of chapter 27